drive to deep left field. Three-run home run for Alejandro Kirk. Well, quite a drop for Kirky in the home run department. That's his first home run in over a month, but it's a big one. His 13th, lucky 13, makes it a one-run game. Hey, what's going on? It's At The Letters, brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer, Arden's Dwelling in Toronto. Uh, our producers are Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. As always, Ben Nicholson-Smith is off this week. He will be here for the very end of the podcast when we're going to have an interview with Anthony Bass that we recorded a week ago in New York in the Bronx with uh, Christian and Nick when we were down there producing some stuff. Uh, but for now, Shai Davidi is here uh, in Ben's steed. Shai, thank you so much uh, for joining. Uh, it's funny, we were talking after the game last night on uh, on Sportsnet Central doing our, our chat and looking back on the month of August when the Blue Jays go 13 and 14, the one losing month, one losing calendar month of the 2022 season. It's a negative 12 run differential in the month. It's just how do you think the Blue Jays come away from August feeling about the results and what happened over the last month? Did we learn anything? I mean, what do we take away from what a strange month that was for the club? Strange month, strange season. And you're not feeling good about it, right? And I think there's a lot of stepping back and trying to big picture it and saying, okay, still in possession of a wild card spot, still in control of your own destiny, still have some couple soft softer series coming up in Pittsburgh and Texas where you can still maybe bank a few wins for some of the tougher tests that lie ahead but nobody should be happy about this because typically you think all right trade deadline you make a couple moves you get a boost you try to take off and every time it looks like this team is about to take off it regresses and it's just been a remarkable season of where it's either peak or it's valley. And there hasn't been a lot of middle ground. You have a rough stretch, then you go six and one, a road trip, Boston, New York, you go two and four in a homestand against the Angels and the Cubs. And, you know, you're fighting tooth and nail just to get the two W's against the Cubs there. It's just a weird extension of what's been a weird season where it's just either really good or really bad. And it's it's just a strange plane of existence for this team right now. And you could play the arbitrary endpoints game, right? Because over this homestand that just wrapped up against the Angels and the Cubs, the Blue Jays go two and four against some pretty poor teams. You go, oh, no, like that's not really good. But then you pull it back, right? And you include the road trip you're mentioning through the Bronx and through Fenway. And it's, oh, okay, well, actually, the Blue Jays are nine and five in the last 14. Okay, that's pretty good. But then you kind of pull out to August and they're a game under 500 in August. They're 13, 14 in a month. Well, that's not so great. But then you pull out even further and in their last 42, the Blue Jays are 25 and 17. That's a 595 winning percentage. That's a 96 win pace over 162. So just depending on where you set your your endpoints, like you can paint a picture of a season that is going very, very poorly or a season that's actually going 
okay. Like to your point, the Blue Jays are in the third wild card spot, control their destiny. They're up on Baltimore, who is just outside of that picture. They've got a million games remaining against Baltimore, so they can bury those Orioles pretty thoroughly if they take care of business. Like it really is sort of are you an optimist? Are you a pessimist? You know, like how like do you which picture of this season do you want to paint? Because depending on how you look at it, you can say, yeah, this is like an elite offense, top five in most statistical categories, or you can say they can't score against the LA Angels and the Chicago Cubs throw a bullpen day uh, of dudes you've never heard of and are like holding the Blue Jays down and, and winning a game. So like, I don't know if I have a question. I don't know if I have a way to <laughs> wrap up this thought. Shy. It's just like, it, it just gets back to how baffling and strange and hard to analyze this season has been. Yeah, it feels like you're kind of trapped in a round room trying to find a corner a lot of times with this team, right? This is what I would say, is that a lot of times your opinion of this team depends on just when you're looking at them. And you've had these conversations with people. I've had these conversations with people. This group itself isn't sure what to make of it. And they're all working as hard as they possibly can to smooth it out and try to find that level of consistency. But it's very strange to me that I still think this group is better than its record has shown. And I I believe you believe that as well. And why it hasn't come together, why in some ways is this a bit of an extension of a pattern that stretches back even to parts of last season where they'd have these fits, that's something that they've got to figure out. You know, the it reminds me a little bit in some ways of what the Yankees last year were like where they could be absolutely world-beating and then they could be absolutely dreadful and they function between those two extremes and they made a couple of changes this winter, sure, but you know, is basically the difference between you know 2022 Yankees and 2021 Yankees, the fact that Aaron Judge is having this monster season. You know, I think that could be one of the things that, that has been a difference-making for them, one of the main differences for them. And maybe if the Blue Jays run it back with this group, we're having and and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is back to you know 2021 form or having another monster year, you know maybe maybe everything's fine at that point. But I wonder if maybe there's a little bit too much of the same type of approach, same type of hitter in that lineup, and that you know beyond just trying to get an impact lefty in there, they just need to find uh, you know a couple guys who are going to force opposing pitchers to do something very different and keep you know make them break the rhythm that they can sometimes get into this team uh, because the formula for a lot of hitters you know is just like pound guys inside uh, with with the hard stuff and then try to get them to chase with softer stuff away you know and if, if you're if a pitcher just can kind of find a rhythm with that approach and doesn't have to vary maybe sometimes that that makes them a little bit easier to pitch especially if you find that arm slot find that release point and start rolling it's like it's the bigger picture question really like you said going back two years now with this club and you and i talk about it all the time why is the whole of the blue jays less than the sum of its parts like it's so perplexing and you like you yeah you you drew a parallel to the yankees i would agree with that i think there's a parallel to be drawn to the padres recently as well you look at them last season missed the playoffs below 500 with a team that had like Tatis and Machado. I mean, you got Musgrove in your rotation and Darvish and Snell, like all these great pieces 
having great seasons that didn't really coalesce and all come together. And you look at the Padres this year, they're better, but they're kind of like the equivalent in the NL of the Blue Jays. They're in the third wildcard spot, right? Like they're still battling for the playoffs right now, looking up at a monster in their division in the Dodgers, just as the Blue Jays are with the Yankees who got off to this incredible start. You look at the Blue Jays club and like you just order the lineup via production. And it's like, wow, they have like, eight or nine guys with an OPS plus weight runs created plus above 100, right? Um, you, you look at the fact the Blue Jays have eight hitters with 100 hits this season. No other team has more than six. Alec Manoa and Kevin Gosman are going to get Cy Young votes. Jordan Romano is pitching as well as any closer in the game. Ross Stripling shows up with this like sub three ERA. Jimmy Garcia and Anthony Bass have been really solid at the back end of the bullpen. Like all the pieces are there, even the defense. Like you even look at the Blue Jays defensive metrics overall, and it says that this is an above average defensive club. Like they do everything well sort of individually. It just doesn't come together as a whole. And I feel like for two years, Shy, we've been like hitting our heads against the wall trying to figure out why that is. Yeah. And Blue Jays have been hitting their heads against the wall too, right? And it's like, okay, maybe Charlie Montoya was the problem. Well, no, Charlie Montoya wasn't the problem. And then you start thinking, okay, is it a matter of deployment? Is it a matter of bad luck? Is it just randomness that exists within baseball? I think all those different possibilities are on the table, maybe to some extent. You know, is it too much information from them, the analyst? Not enough, not the right information, not being translated the proper way. Is it? I think everything has to be examined, right? But that is, in a lot of ways, partly the off-season conversation that needs to take place, right? You know, right now, the Blue Jays are in it. And you're not reversing course uh, in September and saying, okay, we got to make major changes here. You've got to just find ways to win. And to me, the clearest path is, you know, they still on occasion have those lapses. And we saw that on the game on Wednesday, the finale against the Cubs, where, you know, Yan Gomes ends up charging home with a run when the Blue Jays throw through on a stolen base attempt. And it's something as simple as should someone have yelled louder at Kirk to check third before he threw to second, or should the pitcher have cut the ball off and, you know, thrown back, uh, or, or should Kirk just simply have checked, looked over his shoulder before he, he released to, to see if, if Yang Gomes might have been uh, there for the taking, you know, but that run ends up mattering, right? It wasn't the difference because there were two runs, but that's the one that eats away at you. And there are, there are a lot of examples of that. And if they can clean that up and they're playing cleaner baseball, which we've seen them do in stretches, and then you see the type of approach that they've had at different times, like the approach they had against the Yankees and the Red Sox at the plate, you know, that's going to play and you're going to end up being the best version of yourself more consistently if you're doing those things. And uh, you know, we, you and I had a conversation with Kevin Bijou after the game and I, I really like when he said you know, it's just about having a team at bat, trusting in the guy beside you, sticking to your plan, and all that stuff will carry you a long way. And it sounds simple. It's definitely harder to do than it sounds, but it seems like that's what the Blue Jays have to do for the next month. And then you can start attacking some of the bigger picture questions later in the offseason. 
Yeah, I think the team at bats thing is big, and I would I would even like call it a team plate appearance because it's more about taking a walk when it's there for you, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that at times the Blue Jays haven't done that collectively, and I think you can definitely isolate some individuals as well who have expanded their zone with runners on, who have chased pitchers' pitches in like really key moments. That really showed up, I think, in that Angels series where uh, I don't have it in front of me, but off the top of my head, it was something like one for nineteen with runners in scoring position, stranded like twenty seven runners over three days and you could just see it in the approaches at the plate like it was too often what ross stripling has referred to on this podcast a couple episodes ago as the blue jays trying to play hero ball and trying to hit a five-run homer right and and trying to just be the guy to like turn this around and to have the big swing and i think that internally a lot of focus over the last few weeks months even has been put on swing decisions in those spots in those high leverage situations when you have runners on when you can take a walk if it's there for you right like don't like it's it's so cliche some of the ways we talk about this stuff but like letting the game come to you and not forcing it and not trying to do too much even i roll my eyes when i hear myself saying those things but that like that really is what it is right it's not expanding and not getting out of your approach like that's been a massive thing for the blue jays lately a massive focus because you can look at several hitters on this team and the chase rates with runners on are a lot higher than the chase rates when bases are empty and i think that like a it's just like a really big sort of lever that the club can pull is just having a better approach and having better plate appearances in those spots and trusting the players behind you i think that kevin biggio is right to call them you know team abs because that's maybe what's been lacking a little bit lately and part of the challenge is that you have several hitters who by nature are very aggressive and you don't want them to temper their aggressiveness. But at the same time, you want to make sure that they're making smart decisions, swing decisions. And I think one of the challenges, and maybe this is part of it, but sometimes when you're getting all this swing decision data and it's like, oh, you're off on this or this is a bad chase for you. You know, maybe you're taking some of that in the batter's balls. You're like, you know, don't, don't, don't swing at this, or you know, like this is going to be a bad swing decision. You don't want to get in trouble for it. You don't want a bad swing decision to score. And then the next thing you're sort of caught in between. You're like, well, am I attacking? Am I not attacking? Who am I at the plate? And that that's sort of where some of the mental side here is, is certainly a factor. You know, we I see everybody going on about you know these guys need to play with more urgency or these guys need to understand this. Like these guys know what's up, right? Like they, <laughs> they see the standings. Fully, we see <laughs> fully cognizant of where they are in the season, of what's at stake. No, nobody's trying to not do well, right? The thing that it comes back to, you know, I I recently talked to an, a, a starting pitcher who pitched uh, had a good outing against the Jays. And one thing that he said, one you know, that he felt is that that you could see at the plate that they were just sort of like all just ready to go and like determined to kind of just go up there and do damage. And he could kind of use that. And he used that against them. He said, you know, he felt that that made them vulnerable to hard stuff in. He was able to kind of get ahead. Once they're in that, once they started falling behind, you could just use his soft stuff away, just expand a little bit. Uh, and you just get them out of the out of this approach and just just catch them just essentially use their aggressiveness against them and so if you're the blue jays what you're trying to figure out is 
how do you maintain that aggressiveness and use it for you rather than allowing the more smart opposing pitchers to use it against you? Yeah, is Bo Bichette Bo Bichette if he's not aggressive at the plate? Right. Right? I caught him in a situation last night. Um, that would have been Wednesday night's game against the Cubs. It was late. And I, for, I forget who, but like there was two quick outs. I forget who was on the mound for the Cubs, but two quick outs late in that game. It was on like four pitches, and Bo goes to the plate. You can tell he's trying to take some pitches, right? Because it's like you don't want it to be a freaking five pitch inning. But he takes two called strikes, and he's 0 2. And you can just see him in his head being like, I should have swung. Like I should have swung at those. Those are probably the two best pitches I'm going to see to hit in this plate appearance. Now I'm in a hole. I'm 0-2, and I think he ended up grounding out the third pitch on a bad pitch to swing at. And it's like, yeah, Bobichet needs to be aggressive on those on those early pitches. But then he gets caught in a situation where he's trying to do the team thing and he's trying to take some pitches in that spot and extend an inning a little bit. And now he's like, now I'm behind. Oh, too. And I just think about how much might must be going through a lot of these players heads at the plate, especially young players on this team who, to your point, have all this information given to them, like in between games, in between plate appearances on those like on those iPads, right? Like in game mm-hmm. feedback, the swing decision reports afterwards, you know, a lot of the pregame prep and stuff. And I think there's a lot of hitters who feel like, man, like I'm carrying like a lot of weight at the plate right now. Not only the expectations that like I'm putting on myself, but the expectations that like a team's putting on me, a city's putting on me, an analytics department is putting on me, all these reports, all these numbers that I get every day that tell me why I suck. <laughs> and you go to the plate and you're, th- <laughs> and you're thinking about all of that stuff. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said about you know just the the value of information, but also when it can be a little too much, and also maybe when certain players need to have a little bit less of it, and he's just kind of go to the plate and be themselves. Again, here I am falling back on old like tropes and cliches, but it is something I've been thinking about recently. You know, it's funny. I I, I think back to something Marcus Simeon said to me last year, uh, and uh, we were talking about one of those uh, one of one of those valleys, and he was saying, you know. You have to remember the other team drives nice cars too, right? And there's there's certainly you have to understand sometimes it's not all within a player's control. The Cubs say what you will about them. I mean, they played their ass off in that series, right? They they were grind they grinded it hard, and you know obviously the the talent differential was a, a big difference there, but they weren't laying down and dying. They were intent on trying to, to do whatever they could to, to get a win. And that's going to happen. The, the opponents are doing that. And the Blue Jays, and this is a conversation I'm sure you've had too, but they have to realize they got to come with their best every day. And we like to say, oh, this is a soft spot or this is a bad team or, or whatever. But there are no real soft spots, right? Because everybody's trying to beat you. And I think the the days where you know you'd get like the, those fool fools gold wins in September and teams really kind of laying over and dying, those days are are done. You just don't see teams roll over late in the season the way that they used to. And that I, I don't know that the Blue Jays need to understand that because I think they do, but there aren't those opportunities to to win when you're not playing your sharpest. Any little mishap is going to end up costing you. It's either going to make it more difficult for you to win or it's going to end up resulting in a loss. And that is you know maybe one focal point that the Blue Jays can take and 
just remember because they know they know they remember last year when one game was the difference they, they they know very very well that every game matters you know that that's still that's still eating away at a lot of people that what happened last year so they don't need reminders of that but it's it's maybe a way to reframe the way they're thinking about the coming games and, and how you attack them and I think there are teams that are enjoying coming into Rogers Center and taking it to the Blue Jays. Like you look at oh, the yeah. Angels, oh, yeah. right? The Angels on the weekend came out of you know St. Pete, wherever they were, right? And I, I don't know what the crowds have been like, you know, for the Angels at home, but I'm sure it hasn't been a great time. And obviously their season's going nowhere. And they come out of St. Pete where there's nobody there, and they show up at Rogers Center, and it's like forty thousand people every night. And I feel like that team got a real boost. For, like, I know that team got a real boost from that and enjoyed playing in that atmosphere and enjoyed taking it to the Blue Jays, just like the Cubs enjoyed taking it to the Blue Jays. Um, this week like and the, there is for the blue jays like they're, they're dealing with with all these things that we've talked about and then also like the burden of expectations right like you think about the baltimore orioles who are you know playing as well as any club over the second half i mean zero pressure right now their season is already a success they could lose every game for the rest of the year and it is like and they'll they will have a better season this year than they did last than they did you know, pre-pandemic, obviously the pandemic season was only 60 games, but like two 100 plus loss years prior to that. So like the Orioles like are, you know, calling up Gunnar Henderson and going like on this playoff push over the next month with entirely house money. If, if they make it there, if they don't, who cares? Like it's still a successful season for the Baltimore Orioles and they have young players, Henderson, Rutschman, Mountcastle, like they're relying on young guys as well, but they are just free of that burden of expectation. Whereas I feel like you can feel it in certain Blue Jays plate appearances, the, the weight that players are carrying and the expectation and how badly like they are trying to turn this thing around and play up to their potential like you said they know the score they know what's happening and it's so hard to talk about right it's so abstract and like it's so ambiguous and nebulous but there is something there with the culture of this team and just with the the chemistry and the cohesion of it with what's going on like kind of between the ears with this team that we can't put a number on and we can't like objectively empirically analyze but i really just feel like there is something there that is contributing to the outcomes Further than that, Arden, or further to that, Arden, is that the Blue Jays expected to be the Yankees, yeah. right? In terms of where they are in the standings right now, they didn't expect to be here in a wild card race at where every game mattered. They expected this to be sort of the finalizing themselves for the playoffs and getting ready, not fighting for their playoff lives uh, on September first, as we're recording this. But that's where they are, and. I do think that part of, again, like you said, I'm, that's very, uh, very subjective and very unquantifiable. But there is something to this feeling that you're supposed to be better. You're not. You're fighting tooth and nail for everything that you have to get and how that impacts things and how that impacts your mindset and how you feel and the vibe and whatever you want to describe it. It, it. It's something that's been there for sure. It was certainly something that was at play. You know, you sensed it that road trip uh, in June with, uh, was it Milwaukee and Chicago? And mm -hmm. obviously I, it was really there during that stretch through Oakland and Seattle. And, and that ended up leading into the, the managerial change. But 
you know, th- this team has gone into s- some dark places at times uh, amid the fr- some of the frustrations that they've had. And they pulled themselves out of that, which is good. But again, we go back to the peaks and valleys thing, right? Why is it always peak and why is it always valley? And that, how do you get yourself out of that? It's tough, you know, and this is not to get too tangential, but I think back a little bit to the 2016 Blue Jays, right? They were in first place going into September and then they just completely stopped hitting that September and they had a grind and they ended up winning the wild card on the final weekend of the season in, in Boston. And and then suddenly they got hot and then they, you know, crushed Texas and, you know, they might've, they might've might beaten Cleveland if they could have gotten a, a hit off Corey Kluber in that first inning of game one of that series. But instead, you know, Marco Estrada ended up pitching one of the greatest games, playoff games in Blue Jays history. It's one solo shot by Francisco Lindor that beats them. Uh, and that changes series, but that team got hot at the right time. And, you know, could something similar happen with this year's group? I mean, you know, maybe, but the, the track record to this point has been just, just that. You, know, you think about pressing with a club, right? And it's like, it's the Potter Stewart quote, right? Like, I, I don't know that I can define pressing, but I know it when I see it, right? And I, I see it in a lot of plate appearances with the Blue Jays, particularly with runners on um, and runners in scoring position and, and in the way that they expand their approach and they chase pitches off the plate. Like, you can see it, you know, you mentioned the the play in Wednesday's game where Kirk doesn't look the runner back at, at third pace, the misexecution there. You can see it in the liner that knuckles at Whit Merrifield in that game as well and gets by Whit Merrifield on a play that probably should be made. You see it in Teoscar Hernandez's base running in the Los Angeles Angels series and some of the play in the outfield as well. Like, I just, I think that pressing in baseball, like, it shows up in decision-making, right? It shows up in those decisions to take an extra base, to swing or not to swing. And I've seen it from the Blue Jays of late. Um, and so, like I, you know, to your point, it's the sort of thing that really crops up when the team is scuffling, as it has been over the last month, and they could very well go on a run this September. They're essentially entering September 2022, the same position they entered 2021 September in. And we all know the run that they went on and ended up one game shy of the postseason. But if it was an expanded postseason world, the Blue Jays would have been in. So they could very well just do that again right? <laughs> and just go on that similar run. A lot of it's going to come against Baltimore, 10 games against the Orioles in September. A lot of it's going to come against Tampa Bay. Nine games against the Rays. Think about it. 33 games remaining. 19 against the Orioles and Rays. It's like nearly 60% of the remaining games are going to be against those two teams. So like, there's a lot to be like the, the Blue Jays could go on a crazy run here and bury those two teams and we'll be laughing at the conversations that we had in August. But I guess the question for me is just whether it's going to be those little things like it's going to be the like knuckler with Merrifield, the, you know, the Alejandro Kirk, not looking to run her back to Oscar Hernandez, but base running, like, is it going to be those little things that need to be cleaned up that will help this team kind of get over the hump in September if it can get over the hump? 
Or is it the big things? Like, is it Vladimir Guerrero Jr. like playing closer to the ceiling than maybe the the floor performance we've seen this year? Is it Bo Bichette rediscovering what he did last season? Is it like Alec Manoa and Kevin Gosman having these like seven inning shutout outings? Is it Jose Barrios finally arriving this season? That's kind of my question. Is it going to be more so the big stuff or the little stuff that helps this team unlock what it's what it's missing right now? Honestly, I think it's going to be a little bit of both. If you're waiting for this sort of magic bullet to come in and resolve everything, I don't think it's going to be just this one thing. It's It's got to be good execution, right? It's got to be you guys playing to their, to their potential. And it's got to be all those things coming together. And, you know, the one thing to kind of keep in mind too, and – as you were talking about the the pressing and some of the decision making and how that filters in and we do also have to remember that some of these guys are pretty beat up right yeah. like george springer every move he makes is with a brace that starts at his shoulder and goes all the way down to his wrist yep. right like <laughs> the bionic he, arm he's, he's wearing <laughs> yeah. exactly you know i mean that that if you're feeling great you're not wearing that thing yeah. uh, you know, Teoscar Hernandez uh, nearly broke his foot twice and he's playing on it. And like every step he takes is painful. Matt Chapman has been uh, a monster all season and he just get just on the field every day doing all his work. Same with Bo Bichette, same with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Who's had wrist, hand and foot issues this year uh, and played through them. You know, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., all those guys are beat up in different ways. It's worth acknowledging that, that, you know, nobody's at their peak at the same time, you know, welcome to September baseball, right? Welcome to 162 games. That's why it's a grind. That's why it's hard. That's why it's rewarding at the end of it. And so all those things have to come into play. Guys, are some of them have experience, you know, certainly Springer, Chapman, you know, they understand what it takes to get through 162 games when you feel like garbage and when you're beat up and when you're not at your best and being able to give a hundred percent of the 75% that you have available to you at that day. That's maybe the final hurdle to clear in some ways. Uh, and, you know, as much as they're, the Blues are in the same spot they were a year ago, the one difference is last year they were chasing and this year they're being chased. And that's a bit of a different feeling, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, the, as you mentioned, you know, the Orioles are playing, you know, stress-free. There's like, go out there and everything's a bonus for them. The Jays know, like, Orioles are right there. The twins are right there. Uh, you know, the twins, especially they, they've got a, a lighter schedule than they do. You know, the, they're not disappearing. So, uh, that that part of it is somewhat new to this group and it doesn't change your mentality. It doesn't change your approach, but it maybe changes some of the way you think about things before and after games. And, you know, maybe at times in between plate appearances. 
Yeah, you mentioned the chat that we had with Kevin last night in the clubhouse, and he did mention on more than one occasion a lot of guys are beat up, <laughs> and it's yes. it's true, uh, it's very true. Like they they would have to be with just the volume and the workload that a lot of guys have had, and then a whole bunch of them ended up like on what is supposed to be the break, uh, the All Star break, ended up like flying across the continent, right? And you know, Alec right. Manoa, my goodness, like grows pitches in that game wearing a microphone, right? Like up to ninety six, and you were there, like all the like ancillary stuff at the all-star game the players have to deal with all the expectations demands media and everything like Alec Manoa flies across the continent does that pitches in the game flies back to Fenway Park and is like pitching his ass off like days later for the Blue Jays and like you know Alec Manoa is like a very large human being and a very big presence but we forget how young he is right and how inexperienced he is as well there's a lot of young players him Bo Bichette Vladimir Guerrero Jr. still just 23, like a lot of young players who, you know, did, didn't like in the pandemic year, didn't have the benefit of like experiencing a full major league season. And they did get the experience last year for as weird as it was going from like Dunedin to Buffalo to Toronto. But you think about, you know, for, for a lot of them, like they are still kind of learning what it takes at this level. And I know people are sick of hearing that at this point, but we probably can't say it enough. Right. Just to, to frame this too, and I mean, I haven't checked this in a, in, in a few weeks, but just to demonstrate how young they are, their position player core is still either third or fourth youngest in the majors. Yeah. Right? Like, just to, to put that into context, the Yankees were, if not the oldest, very close to being the oldest. So that that is another factor. Now, you can look at that and say, you know, I'm talking to someone from Cleveland when they were here, personal saying that, you know, we may just be young and dumb enough to just keep on contending, right? <laughs> These guys may not know any better. And yeah. so there's, you know, sometimes there's value in not knowing what you don't know. Uh, at other times, you know, there's also not knowing what you don't know can be difficult and be sometimes you have to learn that the hard way. And it, it, these aren't excuses or whatever. These are just realities of w- uh, of which this team is currently existing. It's a really fascinating time for this group because, rightly or wrongly, I think significant conclusions will be drawn based on what happens over the, the the next month. Whether it's you know the future of John Schneider, whether it's the future of certain players, whether it's how this group gets augmented into next year, but there there's some significant decisions that are going to be made based on what happens over the coming weeks and. Uh, it's it's going to be a really meaningful stretch, not just to the course of this season, but to to some degree the trajectory of this of this core going forward. Yeah, people say you know, oh gee, like Alejandro Kirk only hit one home run in August and had you know like something like eight or nine extra base hits in July and August. Why does this twenty three year old player playing a full season for the first time had like one hundred and sixty games in the minors with which to build a base? Why does this young player hitting this wall in September? Hmm. I wonder why, right? Like some of this stuff is like, it's right there with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., right? Like he, like he's so talented, like he is so good that he is able to have what feels like a disappointing season for him and what feels like, you know, as I said, like a, a floor ceiling for him. And he's like 135 weighted runs created plus or something, maybe even 
140. And he's able to have this like this August where, I mean, how many plate appearances did you see that ended in a ground ball with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., right? I mean, the, the, the ground ball rate in August is like 58%. I mean, that's just as high as it's been at any point this season. But it's still like a 140 weight runs created plus August. Like that's just how talented the guy is. He hit six homers in the month. He hit only three in July, right? He hit six in August. Um, he had a super low strikeout rate in August. Still like not walking a ton, but not striking out a lot either. Like that's just how good the guy is. Like where, like where are you kind of at with with Vlad right now, I guess, as I kind of wind my way around to a more specific topic. Like, where are you at with Vlad with just the weird August month he's had, the ground balls that have come back, but still his ability to be productive and to be Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And for people to kind of say, hmm, like if this is him, like when he's not right, what's he look like when he's on? Vladdy is two for three tonight. Two singles has driven in a run. Drives it to right and hits it well, and it is gone! Boy, do good things happen when he elevates the ball, and he takes it to the opposite field for number 27 on the season. A two-strike home run with very little effort. This is who he is, man, and this is what he can do on a regular basis. Right. And we saw that last year, right, when he was on, and everybody himself included, thought that was going to be, you know, just a jumping off point. I would say with Vlad, again, our perception of what is, and and to a lesser degree or to uh, to a certain degree as well with, with Bo Bichette, like our perception of what they should be doing versus what they are doing and how we look at it is so skewed by the talent level. And these guys are still learning. They're still learning about themselves. They're still learning about what what it takes. And you can say all the stuff about them growing up around the game and them already having done it and overcoming the challenges of the 2020 season in Buffalo and the, the three home city year in 2021. But these things aren't linear. The game keeps adjusting to them. They have to find ways to adjust back. And you know, they're, they're also learning about themselves physically, you know, who knows, you know, when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. told me earlier this year that, you know, the wrist is going to have be something that he's going to have to manage for, you know, the, the rest of his career, you know, is that a factor? Is he, is he had some ups and downs physically that he's not talking about that he doesn't want to acknowledge? Has he been beat up? Like certainly, you know, he got hit uh, on the hand a couple of times and even though he avoided major injury, that doesn't make it easier to hit. Right. Uh, he fouled that ball off his foot uh, and it, it swelled up to the point the next day, even though it wasn't broken, that he couldn't even get a shoe on. Yeah. Right. And then he was back in the lineup the day after that. Like these guys are playing through things. So, like, I don't want to kind of cast full judgments without knowing the full extent of what guys are going through from a physical perspective, from a mental perspective. But, you know, Vladdy being able to be productive when not fully right is just reflective of what an immense talent he is. And the arbitrary endpoint thing is something that we have to be careful of too, because there are times this year where he was elevating the ball on a consistent basis and doing immense damage. And he could very well get back to that. And, you know, with him, I I always think about, well, what is he swinging at? Is he expanding because he's trying to make things happen? And that's something that he acknowledged to me earlier in the season. He had tried; he was trying to do, 
that he was chasing impact. He was chasing those RBIs, especially with runners on. And so I just think that there's a lot going on just all around big picture with these guys that we, we can judge them harshly too quickly. Now, it's clear that when Vladdy's goes, this team goes. And that's mm-hmm. a lot on a 23-year-old's shoulders. So, you, you know, Vlad's carrying all that. I would expect that he's going to find a way to figure it out. We'll see probably a better version of, of Guerrero this September. Uh, but there's enough in the background that, you know, if it, if it's another month like it was in August, I mean, you can, you can understand why it might, might end up being that way. This is what it is, right? This is Major League Baseball, you know, and it's like it's hard and it's grueling. It's an absolute grind. People are always like, wow, why do, you know, teams that qualify for the postseason, like, why do they celebrate like crazy? Like, they go nuts and have this insane party. Yeah, because it's like six months prior of regular season plus one of spring training plus three months of like off-season training all culminating in this moment like of course you celebrate that because all these guys have been through this insane marathon where they've like changed as people and they've as you know they've dealt with injuries and they've had like all kinds of interpersonal things going on they spent every day around each other for six straight months and they've had you know relationships that have like fluctuated throughout and they've had things in their personal lives that they've gone through and shared with each other like there's just so much that goes into it so it's and then even thinking about the burden of expectations that we've been talking about and trying to do too much and trying to be the guy hero baseball all this stuff like all that stuff plays into it so it's understandable that like it's hard and you get to september and maybe it's not all coming together for a team you're like why is it not happening and all this stuff is interrelated but i think you know the, the other side of that is that really good organizations kind of find a way to be successful through that and to put their players in positions to be successful and to give them the resources and the tools and to make them feel comfortable and to like get them to that finish line like the dodgers have relied on young players at times right like they're sure they've got some really solid veterans but they've found a way so like yeah it's really really hard but like it's major league baseball like it's not supposed to be easy yeah, well, I mean, if if every team could be the Dodgers, uh, <laughs> know. you know, it's a high standard. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, but uh, that that needs to be the aspirational goal, and you know, I, I know that the Blue Jays do look to the Dodgers and are trying to, you know, they want to sort of pick the best of the the Dodgers and the Rays, and and you know, meld that into to what they become, which you know, probably the the two organizations that you want to be looking to uh, for inspiration in, in that way. But for sure, I mean, it's incredibly difficult. And the, the season is such a monster. And you know, the more, the, the longer that I cover this game, the more that I appreciate what a monster, just everything around the demands can be. And I just think that this, this team, they have to constantly tell themselves they're in a better spot. Because I just... As we were going back to what we were saying earlier, you know, they feel that they shouldn't be in this spot. And they're still in a good position, but they're clearly not where they want to be. And how do you manage that? How do you overcome that? Is that a significant factor? Maybe this isn't the greatest analogy, but they're almost like, you know, the the A student who's procrastinating on an assignment and then suddenly they're crash coursing it, you know, at midnight the day before it's due. And I'm like, why did I put myself in this position? 
right? You can still get it done. You're still probably going to get a good mark on the assignment, but you know, you, you end up lamenting to yourself, why did I, why did I put myself in this spot? And it kind of feels the Blue Jays are, are like that student, right? They're like the A student that left the assignment to the last minute and now they have to really cram it to get it in. This podcast has had a lot to do with the abstract, right? And a lot to do with, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of things that we can't put, put our hands on and can't quantify, but there is something that we can absolutely quantify. And that is what I want to finish up with you here as we transition into Major League Beer for Major League Baseball, brought to you by Miller Lite, the original light beer. And that's hot dogs. Shy, you've been doing a great job all year of calculating, or you're not calculating it, but just documenting what. The, I'm glad I'm not calculating it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Uh, documenting the amount of grease missiles that uh, Blue Jays fans have been uh, just hurtling towards their small intestines during uh, Looney Dog days and nights throughout the regular season. And it's really just interesting to watch this data develop throughout the year when the Blue Jays had their first Looney Dog promotion on April 26th, you were seeing 1.37 dogs per fan being ingested. May 3rd, 1.35, like set the bar really high. And we kind of saw through, you know, June, July, the numbers waned a little bit, started getting down to like 1.18 dogs per fan, 1.05 dogs per fan, 1.02 in a season low at the end of July. And then now recently in August, it's been ticking back up. Blue Jays fans on August 30th hit the 1.35 dogs per fan tally, got back up to the previous highs from earlier in this year. But the next Looney Dog Day is a day-night doubleheader. It's that doubleheader against the Rays, shy. What do you think Blue Jays fans are capable of, hot dog ingestion-wise, on that day? Could we see records fall on the doubleheader day in September? Well, I do hope the plumbing at the Rogers Center is prepared for whatever <laughs> is going to happen on that day, uh, because if the if the attendance is high enough, I mean, they've got there's a shot at 100k hot dogs uh, for for a single day, which is you know the the reason I started tracking this is because I would just I'm simply fascinated uh, by what the logistics are of preparing storing, um, having the inventory, and then selling, distributing all the things that go into it, uh, 45,642 hot dogs in a single night, right? And then just imagining all the things that have to go, like, how many crates of hot dog is that? I mean, how much space in the bowels of, of the Rogers Center is being occupied by these, these, this a collection of hoof, snout, and and ear. <laughs> you know, this is uh, and just being able to prepare that. Uh, it, it's it's a monumental task, and and then you know if if they do get, they're going to push uh, at least. You think based on some of the numbers, you know, eighty to ninety k, and maybe more if the you know it ends up being closer with salad and attendance. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's a troubling number to comprehend. You know, you'd like to think that people don't hate their insides to that extent, uh, that they would consume that many <laughs> hot dogs in, in a sitting, but here we are. So, uh, it, it's, it, it would be quite the spectacle. Uh, and, you know, shout out to the staff at, at the dome who are getting that done for people. You know, that is, that is a monumental task. And, uh, you know, they've done it every Tuesday home game and uh, they're going to get their, their most significant test yet during that doubleheader against the Rays. Have you dug into how the numbers are impacted by team performance on any given day? So like if the Blue Jays are losing by 10, is there like, uh, you know, eating your feelings effect? Whereas if they're winning by a whole bunch, maybe there's a celebratory effect and if it's a tie game maybe people are just a little bit tense and not consuming quite as as many uh you know hooves tails and snouts as you put it uh in, in those situations i i need to tell you Arden, that uh, i'm i think you'd need more data to accurately <laughs> dig into that like you'd need to know sort of when in the game in the ball game the hot dogs are being consumed at what rate and uh to be frank uh, no pun intended. Uh, that is not. <laughs> I'm not that interested in in how people are eating their feelings. My guess is that people are loading up in the early innings, uh, mm. and then depending on how their stomachs feel afterwards, are making decisions based from from there beyond that. So uh, it, it is an interesting question whether people are eating their feelings. Uh, I'm not sure that that would be a healthy way to to do it. But uh, I, I guess there are worse ways to cope if you're if you're frustrated by what you're seeing uh, on that that day. Better than you know throwing stuff on the field or some of the other things, some of the other antics we've seen fans pull. Any port in a storm, Shy. Any port in a <laughs> storm. Uh, we thank Shy Davidi for stepping in this week on ATL. He's at Shy Davidi on uh, Twitter. Uh, you read him in sports now. You see him on TV and everywhere. Uh, of course, Shy. Thanks so much, man. Pleasure as always. Okay, our thanks to Shai Davidi. Now, the interview that Ben and I did with Anthony Bass at Yankee Stadium. Anthony Bass with us. Anthony, how's it going? How uh, are you enjoying your second stint with the Blue Jays at this point? It's been great. It's been a nice transition, especially um, a lot of familiar faces from my time here in 2020. So that makes getting traded here a lot easier. Um, wish we were winning some more games. <laughs> I feel like I might have cursed the guys a little bit, so hopefully we can turn that around. Yeah, hopefully there's no Anthony Bass curse that we're talking about. Um, it would be the Zach Pop curse, not the Anthony it, right, Bass exactly. curse. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, but, but certainly, I mean, your numbers this year have been really good uh, before and since joining the Blue Jays. Um, and a lot of that, from the outside looking in, seems to be connected to a slider that you've always thrown, but now you're throwing a lot. So can you tell us what went into throwing the slider uh, as much as you are? Yeah, um, I don't know the numbers, how many times I threw it in 20. Uh, I want to say it was maybe around like 40%. But um, over the years, just from what my eyes have seen, the hitters swinging and missing at that pitch, and then also front office personnel telling me that I need to throw them more, uh, I think both of those really came into play. Um, just seeing the hitters not really squaring it up very often. Um, so, yeah, I just decided to keep on throwing it. And then the hitters will let me know when I'm throwing it too much, I feel like. You know, you can kind of get in a trap if you start showing that pitch too often. The hitters see it, they start getting uh, better swings on it. So then that's when I go to my other pitches. Now, 
Did I hear a story about you facing your own slider in like a virtual reality setting? Yes, I did. This is uh, true. And can you expand on that and tell us a little? Because I mean, that's that's kind of cool to see your yeah. own slider coming at you. Yeah, I want to see if my stuff's any good. Um, it's the, on the Oculus 2 is the name of the, the virtual reality headset. And then the software is the um, Win Reality is what this software is called. And I was just curious what my stuff looked at looked like this year. So we were in Pittsburgh when I was with Miami. And I was in the clubhouse, in the kitchen, and I put on the headset. And I grabbed the controllers acting like it was a bat. And uh, I faced myself. And I realized that when my slider is in the middle part of the plate, I can hit it. Yeah. But when the slider is going down and away, away from me, it becomes a blur. And then it, it pairs so well with my two-seamer in, in the game, the two-seam in got on me quick. So I was like, all right, maybe I should keep that two-seamer into the righties and then let that slider expand down away. Don't leave it over the middle of the plate. I think that I'll have success. And obviously it's been working uh, a lot for me this season um, and hopefully continue to roll. roll you mentioned... That. You mentioned people have been telling you to throw it for a long time. Theo yeah. Epstein in 2018 yeah, yeah. told you to throw it more, yeah. but you didn't. <laughs> why, why not? Like, what? what is the, you know, why did it take you until now to get to the usage that you want to be at? I think because I always believed in my fastball. Yeah. And I felt like I was never a pitcher that should be strictly a breaking ball pitcher. Because I, I, my fastball is a 95 mile an hour fastball, and I feel like that can play at this level. So it was kind of like one of those things where I didn't want to give way to becoming a breaking ball pitcher, per se, because um, I like my fastball a lot. Is there an ego thing with that a little bit? <laughs> I think that's what I'm trying yeah. to say, yeah. <laughs> I, I just don't want to give in to just throwing breaking balls the whole time. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, the fastball got you here, too, so right, that's, right. that's for sure. I, I guess, like, you know, remarking on the change in your own um, your own approach to pitching in the last couple of years also calls to mind like the massive differences for this team in that period of time. I mean, the fact that, you know, you were pitching for this team, did not play a game for the Toronto Blue Jays during that season in the city of Toronto. How much different has it been to be back and, and able to play actually home games and, and in the in the country of Canada, city of Toronto? I had the butterflies the first time I pitched the Rogers Centre at the last homestand. It was exciting feeling the energy from 45,000 people just pulling for you was such a, a great feeling I didn't get to experience in 2020 when I was in Buffalo. Hey, don't worry, Zach Pop. You know, we're just doing an interview. Um, you know, just, just feel, feeling the energy from the crowd. Uh, you get that adrenaline rush, and it helps you, I feel like, perform better in those situations. It also can be your own worst enemy. Um, allows you to work faster, get amped up, overthrow. So you got to be able to control yourself in those situations too. Yeah. Looking back on your career and just how you've gotten to this point, like having a phenomenal season, but it took like, you know, coming into the game as a starter, going to Japan, becoming a reliever, changing your pitch mix. I mean, how do you kind of reflect on what's just the journey and how long it's taken you to get to this point? Obviously, I wish that it clicked sooner for me. Yeah. I feel like I would have had a longer career in the big leagues. But, you know, at the same time, I'm really glad that I learned through a lot of my failures it's really helped me become the pitcher I am today and also the, the human being that I am. Uh, so I wouldn't trade all those learning curves in this game for anything. And the people that I've built relationships along the way, uh, it's all part of the journey. And it, looking back on it, um, it's been quite the ride and I wouldn't have it any other way. You talk about you know regaining your confidence in Japan and then yeah. that's where you found that. Can you just tell us what went into that? Like, what, what do you mean by you came out of Japan more confident? So when you go to Japan, you're signing a guaranteed 
contract, right? Yeah. There's no, I mean, there is the minor leagues, but no matter what, you're getting your guaranteed, whatever you agree upon. So that gave me some like sense of like, all right, I can just go out there and pitch and not have to worry about my job. Um, and then the team also gave me a lot of confidence saying, there's a learning curve to the, playing in Japan. We're going to keep throwing you out there. You're probably not going to click right away, but we're going to keep throwing you out there. And they did. They stayed true to their word. And the first month didn't go great. But as I watched my fellow teammates who were also from the from the States pitch, I start to see what they were doing well and having su- success at. And also seeing um, Shohei Otani was my teammate, seeing what he was doing. Obviously, he's got tremendous stuff and talent. Uh, and I started to kind of tweak my game a little bit and become more aggressive in the strike zone, trying to be more efficient with my pitch count. And um, things really started to click for me. I feel like there's a real shock in just how different the baseball is. And not even like the baseball on the field, but like the day-to-day. Like how early yeah. you're at the park, how much they work out over there, the amount of training volume. Like was that an adjustment for you? So thankfully I play with an organization in the uh, Nippon Ham Fighters that the general manager was the assistant general manager for the Detroit Tigers for a little bit. Right. So he understood what Americans go through in Japan. So he didn't require us to do everything that the Japanese players were doing. Thank the Lord. Um, <laughs> you know, just do your sprinting, your conditioning that you normally do, your normal catch play. Don't feel like you have to throw a 100-pitch bullpen yeah. uh, to be ready, um, which was really nice because not every organization is like that. So you mentioned a, a minute ago Shohei Otani as your teammate. I, you know, I, I could ask you a million questions about Shohei Otani. Uh, I guess, like, what what was the best thing about him being your teammate? I mean, to get to observe that, to potentially talk baseball with him, obviously just see him up close. As one of the greatest athletes I think we've probably ever seen play the game of baseball, that must have been pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could talk for a long time about what I witnessed in Japan firsthand. Um, and I even remember telling some of my good friends back home that this young player in Japan is going to come to the States and play in the big leagues and he's going to be an all-star and he's probably going to win an MVP. And I think they all thought I was crazy at the time, but I'm like, this is is the greatest player I've ever seen play. Obviously, here in the States, I would say Mike Trout's the best player, but because Shohei can do it on both sides, that's what puts him over the top, right? And sure enough, the first year, he had a learning curve as well in spring training. It didn't go great for him, but I knew what he's capable of doing, and eventually it was going to click for him, and sure enough, it did, and he's had a nice uh, little uh, run over here. I feel like what people don't understand about him is he's just like a a super athlete. Like if he decided to play volleyball, you know, he would be the greatest volleyball player. That's kind of like what you hear about him is that like he's just a natural. Whatever. Was that kind of your experience as well, being around him up close? Yeah, he was uh, very quiet when I played with him. He was uh, 22 or 23 years old at the time, maybe even 21. I I don't remember. Early 20s anyway. But he was very grounded. Uh, It seemed like he had very good parenting, good uh, good people around him growing up because he was very humble um never acted like he was better than any of his teammates um and then when the lights came on you saw you know the Shohei show is what we called it um (laughs) just impressive but he was always um super down to earth very friendly always smiling just a just a just a kid at heart uh which was just always like very refreshing to see being around Shohei have you pitched against him here yet I have, yes. Yeah. How'd it go? I, I don't know off the top of my head how it went. So he's got a hit off me, but he should be over too. Okay. He, he knows it too. <laughs> Both times he's rolled over to the first baseman. One of the times the first baseman made the play. The second time the ball was hit a little bit harder. The first baseman didn't get a good clean play on it. They gave him a hit. 
whatever. I feel like I got him out twice. <laughs> we got to talk to the official scorer about that one. Get a review uh, a couple yeah, years yeah. after the fact, whenever yeah, it was. Yeah. And I guess as long as we're talking to you about your teammates, uh, former teammates, um, current and former, Zach Pop just walked past us a couple minutes ago here. I mean, we've seen the sinker. We've seen the 98. Yeah. You've known him for longer than us and seen him uh, more. What should we expect from Zach Pop? A lot of what you've already seen already, he, he pounds the strike zone with that. I call it a demon sinker. I mean, it's 98-99 bowling ball. Uh, a lot like, you know, we're here in New York right now, a lot like kind of like Clay Holmes' sinker is what it reminds me of. Um, definitely a great pickup by the Jays. Uh, his work ethic is off the charts. He always w- works hard, comes to the field early, gets his work in, um, Always is always learning, always asking me questions, always asking guys around him what they see. And uh, he knows what he what he is on the mound. He knows that he's got one of the better sinkers in the game. And when he's throwing that, you know, 90% of the time, good things happen. Um, so I try to remind him of that. Hey, you've got one of the best sinkers in the game. If you ever have any doubts, just throw that pitch. Yeah. Uh, and I think you're going to do all right. So really happy that he came with me here. You know, we came together. Uh, really got a chance to build a, a close relationship with Zach over the past season and a half. And really happy for him and his career. Every bullpen is kind of unique and has its own sort of characteristics and inside jokes and like yeah. kind of back and forth. What have you guys kind of learned about the Blue Jays bullpen just as you've sort of assimilated with some of the guys here? Oh, man. I would say that everyone is always ready to, to go at any time. Um, guys are always dialed in, locked in. But early in the game, things are light. We like to talk with our, our bullpen coach, Matt Bushman, and make fun of his tight pants, for example. Um <laughs> But, yeah, we, we keep things light early on, but I would say right around the third or fourth inning of the game, uh, guys start to dial it in and, and start to get prepared to go out there and uh, put up a zero. And you would have known Jordan Romano from your last time, your last stint with the yeah, Jays. Yeah. I mean, what yeah. do you think of what he's kind of become as an MLB closer in the last couple of years? I'm really happy for Jordan. I saw it in 2020. He had the mental makeup to be someone that pitches at the back end of a game. I, I, I tell him I, I, I'm pretty sure he's a serial killer in his head. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> he looks like it sometimes. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. just kind of you know got that makeup to ready just to attack you. And uh, obviously he's got tremendous stuff in his fastball and his slider. And um, he's relentless. He comes at the hitters, doesn't let the name on the jersey affect who he is or, or what he's trying to do on the mound. And uh, I always knew that he was capable of being an all-star closer, and that's what he did this year. He's right there. He might be listening, so don't, you know. Let's be careful now. He, he's kind of looks like Bob Ross today, a little bit. <laughs> I was stripped yesterday, Bob yeah. Ross. Yeah, Painting. yeah, that's right. All right. Anthony Bass, thanks so much for the time. Let's get back to it. Good luck, man. Thank you, guys. Appreciate Thank it. You. Our thanks to Anthony Bass for coming on the podcast. Thanks to Shai Davidi as well. Ben Nicholson Smith will be back next week. Uh, and thanks also to Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade for their production. And thanks to all you for listening. Talk to you next time on at the letters.